Well, later in our service, we'll get to witness six baptisms. We had six baptisms in our first service, six more in this service today. But let's turn our attention to God's Word now, if you would. Turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 16, is where we are today. We've been working our way through the book of Acts for some time now, and we've been calling this series The Acts of the Risen Lord. That's because Acts records what Jesus continued to do. Luke's volume 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, his gospel account, that's what Jesus began to do, Luke tells us. And now in volume 2, what we call Acts, it's what Jesus continued to do after he was taken up. Yes, these are the acts of the apostles, you could say. Yes, it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, it is. But these are the acts of the risen Lord. He is on the move, and he is the one acting. And so we've been seeing the gospel spread through the book of Acts. We've been seeing the gospel spread to new people and new people in new places. We've been seeing the gospel spread geographically. We've been seeing the gospel spread ethnically and socially. In recent days, we've been seeing the gospel spread even from continent to continent as there's a shift at the beginning of chapter 16. And now the gospel is on the continent we now call Europe. The gospel just keeps going and going. Despite opposition, sometimes even fierce opposition, the gospel just keeps saving and keeps changing lives and it keeps forming new communities, which we call churches, like one in Philippi. In Acts 16, we find ourselves in the city of Philippi, and there's not much of a church there yet. In fact, in chapter 16, we only have at most three conversion stories. These people and their families, though, make up the small beginnings of a local church that about 10 years later from this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul will be writing to them with his warmest words and most affectionate love. It's a letter we call Philippians. But let's read this morning of the small but oh-so-important beginnings of the church in Philippi in the second half of chapter 16. Starting in verse 16, we'll read through the end of the chapter. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, here Paul and Silas have four encounters, all of which in different ways have something to do with enslavement, imprisonment, and what is true freedom. So here's the first of the four encounters. The enslaved finds liberation. Verses 16 to 18 show us the, the enslaved woman finds liberation. There's this first encounter with a demonically possessed fortune teller woman who is held in slavery by owners in order to make money off her, her clairvoyance, her fortune telling. This was a big part of Roman culture in that day, even more so than it is in our culture today. In fact, it transcended cultural lines and economic lines and, and that sort of thing. Both rich and poor, both educated and uneducated, would seek out spiritualizers, would seek out these various uh, insights. They would seek out sorcerers. They would seek out those who claim to know the future, that they might get a peek into that unknown future and that they might then better their future, having known what supposedly was to come. Now, now, sure, just like in our day, some of these people claiming to know the future were frauds. But not this girl. This girl has a demon. This girl gets insights from Satan. 
And that's why God's word repeatedly warns God's people from playing with this stuff, with divination, with fortune telling, with those who seek to contact the dead. All of it is forbidden. Deuteronomy 18 lists about, I don't know, 12 different versions of this kind of black magic or arts, whatever you'd want to call it. So just because that some of it out there is fake and fraudulent doesn't mean that any of it is okay for Christians. There's no such thing as harmless fortune-telling. It is literally the devil's playground for some reason. He likes this stuff. It is fraught with demonic activity. The demon inside this girl has otherworldly insights and can't help but speak them. Do you remember in the gospel accounts when often Jesus would show up to a a city or a town and and someone demon-possessed would start pointing to him and and identifying him and calling him the Son of God, and, and Jesus would have to shut them up. Well, so the same thing's happening here where the demon inside this girl is identifying Paul and Silas, you see verse 17, as servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And this goes on for days. Everywhere Paul and Silas go, there's this girl with the same mantra. These are the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim a way of salvation. And eventually Paul gets greatly annoyed by it. He's irritated by it. Why? You might wonder why. What she said was true, wasn't it? Yes and no. It was also very prone to be misunderstood, especially in this first century Roman culture. The most high God in Philippi, in most people's minds, that's Zeus or maybe some other Roman God but they're not going to think Yahweh God of the Old Testament. A way of salvation, that sounds promising, but that's what everyone talked about. Every religion, every worldview, everyone had a a way of salvation, a hope, an answer of some sort. So this is far too vague. There's also the problem of the source, of who's saying it. This is a demon-possessed woman saying these things. So Paul can't allow anyone in Philippi to think that the demon inside this woman and Paul and Silas are on the same team and talking about the same stuff. And so he, he has to put a stop to it. And so with the authority of Jesus, in Jesus' name, he casts out the demon and the woman is free. It's not just the demon that's gone The woman who was in bondage to the demon is now free. She's been liberated. Now Luke doesn't tell us what came next for her. Did this include salvation? Did it include the forgiveness of sins? Luke doesn't tell us, but I think he thinks that that's a given. I'm 80% sure that Luke wants us to see this as a, a conversion. One reason being that this incident with the formerly demon-possessed woman is sandwiched between two other clear conversions. I think surely Luke has in mind that this person not only received the removal of a demon, but also gospel hope. Paul wouldn't be content for a demon to be out of her and then her go on her lost way. He would want her to be saved, to be forgiven. And in a sense, Luke, in his storytelling here, 
he has bigger fish to fry. Not that the outcome of this woman's soul is unimportant to her or to heaven, but in his purposes for storytelling, he leaves what is rather predictable, and we can fill in, she got saved, in order to introduce a new element about how others reacted. Secondly, the liberators face opposition. Ironically, it's because of Paul and Silas's kind, liberating act of removing this demon that they get in trouble, that they face opposition, that, that it leads to even imprisonment. Do you, you see the irony here? Of course, it's God who does the liberating. And they talked about it being in Jesus' name, yes. But he's using the human agency of Paul and Silas here, humanly speaking, rather than be thanked for what they could bring to this girl, the hope that they could offer her, the freedom from this pain and misery and an internal control of a demon, rather than her redemption being celebrated, she has owners. She was a slave. They made a lot of money on this girl and her ability to tell the future. And so they are furious when her exorcism means that their, their money's been exercised too. Luke uses a, a play on words in the original language, just as the demon was cast out. So their hope of money was cast out. And so someone's going to pay for their loss. This is what happens, by the way, when Jesus comes to town. When the gospel comes to town, it steps on toes. It exposes idols. In this case, the idols of greed and materialism. The gospel exposes it. And when it exposes sin and idols, there are only two options. Either you turn in those idols, you mourn them, you reject them, and you cling to Christ for salvation, or you cling to your idols all the tighter and do whatever it takes to protect them even outright fighting with anyone who would threaten them. And that's what happens here. They grab Paul and Silas, they throw them in the city center. It's like the people's court there. There are some magistrates who make decisions on disputes. They don't mention their real motive for trying to turn them in and get them into trouble. Their real motive is their greed, their loss of income. But they offer some other concerns. Verse 20, these men are Jews, they say. Here they're tapping into Roman racism. Just about a year earlier, the Jews had been accused of uh, starting an uprising and then were banished from the city of Rome. They say here, verse 20, they are disturbing our city. In the background here is a, a Roman obsession with peacekeeping. Rome had a good thing going. And it was deadly intent on not upsetting the, the apple cart, not tipping the apple cart. So peacekeeping was a premium. And anything that threatened it was of serious threat, deserving serious opposition. 
Verse 21, they say, they advocate customs that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept. Did you hear the, the Roman pride? Again, racism, nationalism, fear. Behind this is this understanding that Roman religions, approved by Rome, that is, including Judaism, were thought to be inoffensive and unobtrusive. But this Jesus thing isn't either of those. It is offensive. It is obtrusive. But again, because Rome had a good thing going, anything that might upset the economy, anything that might upset the culture, the, the Roman way, well, that was a punishable crime. So you've got to get inside the head of these wicked slave owners called businessmen. They got rich off of a girl's demon possession. They literally partnered with the devil in business. And when something more powerful showed up to town, they doubled down on their original investment. They chose greed over God, Rome over redemption. They chose traditionalism over truth. We can expect that Jesus will step on our toes, our cultural toes, the toes of, of our country. Whenever Jesus or something else is in tension, Christian, let's just get this clear. We, we just go with Jesus. We just keep going with Jesus. If ever there's a fork in the road, Jesus or something else, we just keep going with Jesus. Those of you who are being baptized today, you've already made that decision. You go with Jesus. And it will continue to be tested throughout your whole life. There'll be things over here and Jesus here. You just keep going with Jesus, okay? That's what we do. It's what Christians do. Don't be surprised, though, when there's a test. Don't be surprised, though, when Jesus points out things that are not down his way. And we can expect that people will strongly at times oppose us because of Christ and because of his claims. At times they will misrepresent us. They will malign us as they did with Paul and Silas here, as they did with the Lord Jesus before. It might for us in the 21st century American context we live in, it might for us today be simply occasional maligning. Some jokes, some false accusations. Some newspaper articles here or there that don't really represent us well. It may mean some loss of opportunity these days. It may mean something worse than that in the future. It sure was for Paul and Silas. The crowds attacked them, verse 22. The magistrates stripped their clothes off in order for the beatings to begin. Rods were gotten out and the rods hit them and hit them and hit them. They were inflicted with many blows, verse 23. And now with bare and bloodied backs, they are thrown into prison. An inner cell, maximum security, no windows, no lights. They were put in stocks. That is, these wooden clamps for the ankles that would, of course, prevent escape, but also provide discomfort. So there they sat on the floor, perhaps on their knees, legs locked up in wood in a dark and dank cell. Now, what do you do if you're Paul and Silas? What do you do 
when that day gets long, that day comes to dark, and dark gets black, and critters start roaming about this dank cell, when, when muscles start cramping, and when, when backs are still bleeding, and when there's the threat of infection, and when there's this uncertainty about how long this is going to be, and what's going to be after it, what do you do at 10 p.m., at 11 p.m., at midnight, when you can't sleep? Well, they pray, and they sing. Isn't that great? At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How sweet is this? How instructive is this? You don't have to wait to find yourself in a dark Roman prison someday in order to learn from their lesson, their, their model. No matter what trial you find yourself in today, no matter how big, how small, how threatening, no matter how much or how frequently you're doubting God and his plan, or at least wondering if he's at the steering wheel still, well, do what Paul and Silas did. They prayed and they sung. They prayed maybe for deliverance, but no doubt for other things. Acts 4 gives us a great model of how the church prayed after severe persecution. Read that again if you need a reminder. They're praying for God to be glorified. They're probably praying for their persecutors. They were surely praying for the new Christians in Philippi that were outside the cell. They prayed and they sang. Singing praises to God is an expression of the heart where something flows out of it, but it's also like machinery which cycles the heart, pumps the blood, and gets us moving. It's something we let out because it's in us, but because it's never at 100% capacity, we also use singing to stir up our faith, to stir up remembrance, to stir up our confidence and thankfulness to God. That's what singing is. It's sung with joy, and it's sung for joy. So what do you do in trials? Christians sing. What do you do when you're in trials in church, singing with the saints, hearing God's word preached, praying together is very optional for you. It's a scary place to be. It's not a safe place to be. We sing together because we need each other. We need to rehearse truth together. We need to realign our thoughts to God. And you know what? You can get a little misdirected even six days apart from each time you do that. And so we need more than Sunday mornings. We need, again, in every trial, at any possible moment to question God, we need to rehearse truth to ourselves, and song is a beautiful and poetic way to do it. As these men are doing that, notice the prisoners were listening. The prisoners were listening. There's someone else there, by the way, and he's not listening. He's sleeping. But that sleep was about to be mercifully, wonderfully interrupted. So now thirdly, the jailer finds salvation. Verses 25 to 34, a jailer finds salvation, but not before a good shaking. 
There's a great earthquake. The jail cell doors are shaken loose. The stocks and the chains of the prisoners are freed from the walls. The prisoners can now run out. And you'd think that they would. I sure would have. I would have thought, Lord, this is about as good of a sign as you could possibly give us. An earthquake, we're all loose. Let's bolt. And the guard thought that they would too. And so when he sees the prison gates open, he assumes they're gone. What, what else do prisoners do when they can be free? But not these. And so thinking that they're gone and knowing that his one job as a Roman jailer was to keep the prisoners in the prison. The second part of that was, and make it uncomfortable for them too. But, but, but primarily, the jailer's job is to keep the jail a jail. And so he knows he's in trouble if these men are gone. He knows that failure to keep the prisoners in prison would mean his sure execution it did for some jailers back in Acts chapter 12. They died because some of whom they had contained got out. So this jailer is about to kill himself, draws the sword, and right then Paul yells, Stop! Don't do it! We're all here! And then there's a change, a switch. Turns on. I mean, it's incredible. In just a mere moment... Verse 29, he's trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you see how fast that changed? It's incredible. In one moment, he was about to kill himself because he feared more than anything else the Roman government and the Roman sword. And then hearing that the prisoners are still in prison, something clicks, and he gets it. Maybe he had heard some of the prayers and some of the songs being sung. Maybe he had heard the gospel presented verbally by Paul already. Maybe he had heard just news, rumor in the air about what Paul and Silas had been preaching out in the city. But regardless of the specifics, he has enough information to know that Paul and Silas are messengers from God, that God has intervened here both for Paul and Silas and for this jailer. He has enough information to know that the most important reckoning any of us will ever have to do is actually not with Rome, not with a magistrate, not with a judge, but with God himself. And he has enough information to know that there is a possibility of God saving. But he doesn't know how. And so he asks, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. And what a great answer. Paul's answer in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now surely that's shorthand for a longer conversation. In fact, in the very next verse, it says that they you know, had spoken the word of the Lord to him and his family. So this wasn't a one-sentence gospel, just verse 31. It was longer than that. But, but the Cliff Notes version that, that Luke gives us in verse 31 is power-packed. It has enough information. It tells us that salvation is in the Lord Jesus, a person, in what he did, who he is. You've got to know what he did, who he is, and why it matters for you. Salvation comes to us through faith. 
or belief or trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in what he did. Believe it for you. You don't work towards it. You don't earn it. You simply believe it. And when you believe it, you can be assured that you're saved. And that won't change. And you can be assured. All that in that little sentence. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, if you don't think you need salvation, you're not yet at the jailer's question, are you? If you don't know what you need to be saved from, you're not yet at the jailer's question, are you? You have to know we need salvation from God, and only he can give it to us. We need salvation from our sin and our guilt, and salvation is in Jesus, in him alone. That's why he died on the cross, and what he offers us now that he lives is his righteousness and the payment for our guilt. We call that substitution. He'll, he'll swap accounts with you if you simply believe. If you do, you'll be saved. I pray you hear that today, maybe for the first time, and you no longer have to ask, what do I need to be saved from? Do I need to be saved? How do I get salvation? Maybe today you would hear the answer from the Bible and respond as this man did. He was saved that day. And then he was baptized. That's what Christians do next. He and all his family, verse 33. As I said a couple of weeks ago, baptism isn't salvation. It doesn't produce salvation, but it does beautifully and richly portray several angles to salvation. It's an identification with Christ's burial and resurrection. That's why you'll see people baptized today going down into the water and coming up out of the water. They're identifying with what Jesus did. He died and he was raised. It also pictures a cleansing. This water is just plain old Albuquerque water. It has no cleansing properties other than what water does for our outside bodies, but it doesn't cleanse on the inside. But it does picture what God does on the inside. He cleans our souls. He washes our sins away. Baptism also portrays a different death and resurrection, one of our own. In this, we have died and been raised. An old self is dead. And there's a new self being resurrected to walk in newness of life. For those of you being baptized today, this is what you're saying. You're saying this to the world. You're saying this to Christ. You're saying this to this church. Say it and do it with joy. It's a great, great privilege. Now, as a, in a side... We should note that sometimes in the book of Acts, a whole household or family believes and is baptized. We saw it a couple of weeks ago with Lydia. Lydia was baptized and her household as well. We see it again this week with the Philippian jailer. He's baptized and all his family. Now, some Christians baptize infants of believing parents. Those who, find, those who do so find evidence in a passage like this. They reason that surely there were young children in this household, maybe infants as well. And as mom and dad believe, surely the child was baptized along with everyone else in the household. 
But can I just say, I don't think it says that. And I think, I think what it does say explicitly, at least in this case of the Philippian jailer, is that those who were baptized also believed. In fact, verse 32, they all listened to what Paul spoke. And then verse 34, they all believed and even rejoiced. So you don't have household baptisms here without household belief. They go together. That's an aside. And if you think differently, we still love you. <laughs> now let's not move on from that Philippian jailer, though. Let's not move on too fast. Because something comes after this baptism that's absolutely fascinating to me. I think I've read this passage maybe a hundred times. I, I, it hasn't stood out to me before. Do you see the transformation that takes place in this man? Not only is he baptized, but he cares for Paul and Silas. He washed their wounds. He brought them up into his house and set food before them. This is the gospel beginning to take work in a man. He's, he's being changed. He's not perfectly changed, not completely changed, but he's starting to be changed by this gospel. It's starting to work its way out into worldview and desires and, and aspirations and allegiances, even in risky ways. Remember, he's still a Roman jailer. And remember, he knows he only has one job as a jailer. You keep the inmates in jail. And don't be too nice to them. And what does he do? Well, in the middle of the night, he takes Paul and Silas to his house to care for their wounds, to get the gospel to his family, to be baptized together, and to sit down around the table and rejoice together. This is a man who no doubt viewed these two prisoners with great disgust just hours before. And now, it's like they're family. That's crazy. That's risky business for him to do what jailers are not supposed to do. But this is a man who is saved. This is a changed man, new priorities and higher allegiances. By the way, let's just pause here. We could zoom out on our passage and ask, who really is in bondage? Who really is the imprisoned? Who really is the slave here? Well, it isn't the girl that used to be enslaved. It's more like her former owners are. They're enslaved to their riches, enslaved to their hatred. Who's really a slave or in prison in this passage? It's not Paul and Silas, is it? It's not them. They are free birds even when they're in prison. And that's why they can go back to prison. Isn't that remarkable? Before the dawn, they go back to where they were in a sense, supposed to be. I wouldn't have done that. I would have thought, God busted us out. The jailer took us to his house. Nice. And they go back. So now, fourthly, the prisoners get vindication. I think this is why they go back. 
The magistrates the next morning decided that this controversy had gone on long enough and it had sufficiently quieted down out in the streets. And Paul and Silas have probably learned their lessons by now with the beating and with a, a night stay in prison. And so they send word for Paul and Silas to be released. But Paul will have none of it. Verse 37. He says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Why does that matter? Well, Roman law stated that Roman citizens couldn't be interrogated, couldn't be beaten in courts, and they had a right to a fair trial. And Paul got none of that. They didn't know he was a Roman citizen, and so they were thrown into prison. They were treated harshly. They were beaten. There was no trial. They weren't proven guilty. And Paul says, and now you're just going to tell us, uh, shh, just, just go away. Paul says, no. Now, we're not explicitly told why Paul would now claim his Roman citizenship when he didn't before. We can surmise a couple of reasons why now. For one, the gospel of Jesus had been publicly maligned. That's back in verse 20 and verse 21. And so Paul thinks it deserves vindication and public vindication. I think he also cites his Roman citizenship here at the end because he's leaving behind, in just a bit, a new Christian community. They're going to relate to the government in one way or another. And it's fine if God's plan is persecution. But if that can be minimized, alleviated, then that's not a bad thing at all. And no doubt after they abused Paul, a Roman citizen, they would deal more lightly with the followers of the same religion in the days that follow. It may not always be clear to us why the Apostle Paul sometimes stays in a city where there is severe persecution and why sometimes he leaves one city where there is severe persecution to go to a place where there's less. I don't know always. It's not always clear why at times Paul will take a beating that could have been alleviated or removed if he had just said, I'm a Roman citizen. And then other times he pulls out his Roman citizen card and he waves it around and he gets all the free benefits he can get from it. But we can always conclude that Paul was supremely motivated by the gospel and the gospel spreading. He didn't use his Roman citizenship simply because it was his God-given right and he's proud to be a Roman. Or at least he knows he's free. No, he didn't operate quite like that. Paul didn't take a beating simply because he had an inferiority complex or something like that. He's, he's always thinking gospel strategy. And that trumped all other allegiances and identities and priorities and rights. So there's a question for us here. What is our supreme identity? Who are we? Where are our rights? Where are our allegiances? Where do they lie? And if one is competing with Christ, who wins? There's really one more encounter at the very end of the chapter. In verse 40, the last verse, they visited Lydia. Remember her, the very first convert in the city of Philippi, Lydia. 
By the end of the chapter, there are a few more who've come to follow Jesus. Probably the slave girl, formerly a slave girl. Surely the jailer and his family. And perhaps others, an unknown number and without names. But you get to the end. And when Paul and Silas get out of prison, they go to Lydia's house. And there, there are brothers. Brothers. And they encouraged them before they departed. This is the birth of a church. It's a beautiful thing. You wouldn't see it coming. You wouldn't think God would, would build this cake with these ingredients. The diversity of this church is just incredible if the first few converts are any indication. I mean, you have a wealthy, fashionable clothes designer in Lydia... You have a former slave, formerly demon-possessed fortune teller, a, a girl who, who has no possessions at this point. She has no hope. It's a good thing there's a church. And then you have a Roman prison guard. No doubt he is gruff. Roman prison guards, you don't get that job if like, you like to iron slacks all day or something. This, this is for a rough dude. A rough dude who's being changed to show hospitality and care for wounds on the backs of missionaries. What do these people have in common? Absolutely nothing except the most important thing, Jesus and that changes everything. That now unites them in multi-layered, supernatural ways. So now, this is a community that prays for each other and meets needs. This is a community that sings together and encourages in truth. This is a community that gets together, that loves each other. Not perfectly so, but genuinely so. This is a church. This is the family of God. And in the church, there's no slave, no freeman. There's, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no female or male, there's no young or old. We are all one in Christ, says Galatians. You might wonder, well, what good is going to come from this diverse church? Oh, a whole lot. Just read the book of Philippians. Here are a few verses. Paul said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, and God can testify how I long for you all with all the affection that is in Christ Jesus. That's a church that is gloriously set free. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for salvation in Jesus. Lord, would you save some here in our midst today like you did with Lydia? You opened her heart to receive these things. Would you open hearts here this morning? Lord, the Philippian jailer, somehow it just clicked when he realized that 
Paul and Silas and the rest were still in their prison cells? He began to ask that question, how can I be saved? Lord, would some ask that here today? Would they find that answer? Would you give them salvation and begin to change them for your namesake and glory? We pray, amen.